Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of The Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. <laughs> my, na- my name, my name is Scott Powell. My name is Father Peter. You're like just staring me down <laughs> with like a super aggressive introduction, and I loved it. Every week for the last four years, I've tried to start the podcast, and you always jump in with usually a song. And, and you've been singing. Or you usually sing the opening. I do. And like today, Welcome I was. Welcome to the podcast. And you was some such. uninterrupted, like total availability it window. It was really weird. <laughs> it, was, it was an unhealthy amount of freedom. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want that uh, anymore. Well, you guys, uh, we're you guys, super happy that you're here with us on so this bright happy. spring day. It is. A, well, here it is. Well, I mean, it's actually literally spring everywhere. That's actually a cosmological it, feature of the universe. Oh, th- that's not true. What if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, Father Peter? Oh, oh boom. Dang. Or if you're in another planet, it's not spring. <laughs> cosmological feature of the universe. My, my, my patootie. Dude, if you're on Mars, I don't know what season it and is. And if you're in Australia, happy end of first summer. First day of fall. Fall, maybe? It's yeah. Fr- it would be the first day of fall, because isn't it the equinox, like the same thing? Dude, I don't know. That's a, that's a different podcast. <laughs> it's a different <laughs> podcast. You could go to Stuff You Should Know, and they'll tell you about that. Yeah, yeah. But for now, it is the fourth Sunday of Lent here in here in our planet. Also also <laughs> known as the as Pink Sunday. Oh, is this one? I was asking a few weeks ago, because I couldn't. Yeah, now, yeah. is this Gaudete or Laetare? Um, which one is which? One is one is Advent and one is Lent. I think it's Laetare. 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 Because I want to. Because I remember singing Gaudete, <laughs> Gaudete Christus. You recently natus. sang that, which Christus tells me it was natus. Advent. So that yeah, Good. that means that it's Advent and Christus is natus. It's Christ is born. So Gaudete Christus is natus. Oh, okay. So it's Laetare Sunday. Yeah, yeah. So Laetare. Dude, what really is the rose color supposed to be? What is the color of rose? Because let's be honest, a rose by any other name is still a rose. It still smells as sweet, actually. <laughs> Not to split hairs. <laughs> <laughs> or petals in this case. Oh, very good. Oh, yeah. Well, so, speaking of petals. We're in, our first reading is from First Samuel 16.1b, 6.7.10.13a. It's that scene where Samuel had to pedal down to David's family, down to Jesse's farm. <laughs> and dude, and I'll tell you when, he just kept on plucking. He, he's anointed, he's anointed plucking. not. He's anointed, he's anointed not. That's actually, I like that imagery, actually. <laughs> wow. Okay, we'll get there. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 23. If if someone knows any psalm, it's probably this one. You know what I mean? If you, if you know nothing else, you know this psalm. Dude, I'll tell you, and I, I ask people often what their favorite psalm is. Uh, psalm 23. Absolutely, man. Because <laughs> it's the only one I can think of. <laughs> oh. No, they actually like it. Okay. I mean, do you know that I was introduced by to Psalm 23 by Billy and the Boingers? No. Yeah, in Bloom County because they they, no. they had Tammy Faye singing. The, oh yeah, <laughs> singing at this like absurd thing. Oh, and you guys, I mean, like, dude, I mean that that tells you, you know, like, oh, for the two of you that get that reference, <laughs> it's it's good times. Yep. All right, our second reading is coming from the Book of Ephesians, chapter five, verses eight through fourteen, and um. <laughs> and then our gospel getting longer every week, man. My goodness, like, dude, <laughs> my goodness. Last oh week. my gosh, my kids were misbehaving at mass pretty badly. We had <laughs> we went to a wedding last weekend, so we had to go to a night mass, and it was just it was chaos. And I remember 
the moment that I was trying to keep everybody in check and remembering how long the gospel reading was going to be. And I was like, oh, oh you're <laughs> this like, is terrible. You're like, oh. I forgot about this. You're like, priest, do the abbreviated version. <laughs> nope. No, we got, the, we got the long form. Yeah, you got to have long form. So our gospel right. is John 9, 1 to 41. Dude. That's 41 verses in case you want to pay attention. Dude, like this, this gets real up in here. It does get real up in here. Come on. All right, I want to give a shout out to Sean Baselli, who what, is what? one of the baddest skiers on Vail Mountain. We got to ski with him. And, and by bad, he means good. Like good, like 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 like, like bad to the... I, like, all I can think of are 80s references. I don't bad, know what to bad, do with myself. Mojo Brown. He's not going to get any of these references that I want to give. Yeah. Anyway, bad, bad Sean's, Sean's a stud. Sean's a cool guy. His dad, Bob. We had a great ski day up in Vail. Thanks oh, to the did. whole Baselli crew. It's just fun. And I'd never met Sean. No, I have met Sean before. I actually met Sean last week, last year. <laughs> but yeah, I got to ski with him for the first time. It was just cool. So anyway, I'm going to give a shout out to Bob and Sean Baselli of the Baselli clan of Vail, of Eagle, wherever they live. Whoop, whoop. Edwards. Edwards. <laughs> and uh, I'm assuming that Bob is listening to this podcast with insomnia looking for a way to fall asleep, which is what he said he sometimes does. So. <laughs> Hopefully I can lull you to sleep. Yeah, dude, what well, this is the thing is the more Red Bull we have, the more Red Bull we have, the the less you're going to be able to sleep because we're going to keep you on your toes. I don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know <laughs> what effect we have on people. Maybe it's the opposite. Yeah, These true. guys are exhausting. These guys I'm, are I'm going to bed. You. Dude, so first, first Samuel. Samuel. Jinx. You owe me a Coke. I'm drinking one. I need another. Yeah, whatever, dude. Uh, First Samuel. Okay, so here's here's what's happening in First Samuel. I really love this passage. Um, uh, there's a there's would a you, nuance in the text that doesn't get translated into the English. Would you would you say that this is a write off passage? <laughs> no, a write off passage. Ah, uh, that's if you're taxing. <laughs> this conversation is taxing. <laughs> Oh, we can go on all day, you guys. Okay, so what's first Samuel? What's the secret? Okay, so here's what's going on. So, so uh, we'll get to the secret in a minute. Samuel, just a little bit of background. Who is Samuel? Samuel. Oh, you were about to answer my rhetorical question. Who is Samuel? Do you Sam- remember? Yeah. So Samuel was a prophet who anointed King Saul, mm-hmm. who then um, regretted his decision to anoint him, and then got asked to anoint a new king. Yeah. So Saul is. Uh, I'm sorry. Samuel is actually the last of the judges. So Samuel is actually an interesting figure. So if you if you think of the whole story of salvation, oh. so the biblical story, there's different chunks of uh, salvation history. So, you know, you have in the very beginning you have the medieval, uh, the the um, Sloth prehistoric love chunk. <laughs> what? Sloth love chunk. Good pull. Good pull. Yeah, yeah. So you know you have the period of Moses and the Exodus, where Moses is the leader. You have the period of coming into the promised land, and after they settle into the promised land, Joshua is sort of their military leader. You enter into a period of the judges, and so before they had kings, they had these figures called judges, which really would they like adjudicate legal cases, did, but they were people who gave of, guidance. Yeah, did it come out of the Moses setting up the judges in Israel? I like think when so. He was in the it, it's related it, to that. I can't the, tell exactly where the line is, but it's related to. That. Anyway, Samuel, he is technically a judge, but the reason he's so significant is that Samuel is the figure that judges the period, the historical period of the judges, which is kind of a transitional period, uh, and the kings. So the judges are sort of there to hold down the fort between Moses and Joshua and those guys, and then the period of kings like Saul and David and Solomon and the rest, right? So Samuel is the one who, who bridges those two periods. And so in a lot of ways, Samuel reminds me of John the Baptist, who was another bridge figure between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Samuel bridges the uh, the old period of the judges and the new period of the kings. He is the last of the judges, just like um, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, technically speaking, right? 
So he's kind of a neat figure. Um, his story, I, I love the book of First Samuel. I love the story of Hannah, his mother, how she prays for for him, how she's misunderstood, how he's given in service to God, to the high priest, and all, all these things. Neat story. Anyway, he, and, and quite frankly, throughout the Bible, he is probably one of the most singularly holy people that we meet. Rarely does, I, I, don't, I can't think of a time that he falls, really. He really regrets um, crowning Saul as their first king. Um, but even God is like, just take it easy, Samuel. It's cool. Don't don't get stressed out. It was the people's problem, not your problem. Anyway, he kind of gives in to the demands of the people that, hey, we want a king. It's time for us to have a king. And the demands are basically, we want a king just like the other nations. And so you can read that in two ways. Either we want a king because the other nations have one, yep. or we want a king who is just like the other nations' kings. And Samuel's warning is, no, that's a bad idea. The other kings of all the other nations are corrupt they're and they're going to take and your people and yeah, your money and your lands. Absolutely. It's a bad idea. But he basically concedes and God, God tells him, just let the people have this and they'll see. Right. So he concedes. They get Saul. Saul, part of the reason that he was chosen as king was because he was really tall, he was really good-looking, he was strong, he looked like a warrior. He kind of like stuck out of the crowd, head and shoulders above the rest. And everyone looked and were like, well, you look like a king, and you talk like a king, and you act like a king, therefore you must be a king, right? But part of the theme, one of the major themes of the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is the idea that looks are always deceiving. Looks can be deceiving, right? Oh. And it says one of the themes that does run through the book is and he says this, the Lord, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, what's happening on the outside, the Lord looks at the heart. And that's really the moral of the story of how David is chosen as king. So just to dive into this really quick. So God says to Samuel, okay, get, get over this. You need, to, you need to get back up. I know you're ticked off and you're sad because of Saul and he was a lousy king and you kind of have some responsibility there. It's okay. Fill your horn. Get moving. We're going to move on now. We're going to do something else. And I'm going to show you, go down to Bethlehem, to this place, this farm of a guy named Jesse, and I'm going to show you who the next king is. So he goes down, and uh, Samuel basically says to Jesse, hey, I want you to bring all of your sons out here. He had a bunch of sons. Line them up because one of them is going to be the king. And so it's this very interesting story where it, I, I'm always reminded of Cinderella, right? Because he lines up the sons, and Samuel's kind of going through, and he's like, okay, is it you? Is it you? Is it you? And every one of them, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, the shoe doesn't fit. And he's like, no, it's not this guy. It's not this guy. And he gets to the end and he's like, well, none of these guys are obviously the king. The Lord has made that clear. Surely there's another. Do you, do you have another son somewhere? It is yeah. like Cinderella. Like, yeah, is there another don't call me Shirley. Ah, nice. And of course, um, Jesse, the father, is like, oh, well, yeah, there's David. I mean, but there's that one kid out that in one the field. Kid, <laughs> but we he's, just send him away. Yeah. He's really young and little and he's, you know, he's out in the field. It can't be him. And so Samuel's like, was I not clear when I said, bring all of your sons? So go get Samuel, bring him here. <laughs> but here's what I want to read. Um, it says, it's Samuel saying, look, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And so Samuel asked Jesse, are these, uh, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse replied, they're still the youngest who's tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send for him. We will not begin the sacrificial banquet until he arrives here. So Jesse sent and he had the young man brought to him. He was ruddy, a youth, handsome to behold, and making a splendid appearance. So ruddy. What, what's the problem there, though? Well, let's just based say, on what I just said. Well, okay. Well, let, sorry, sorry. Go on. Well, I mean, when I'm looking at this, the, the the very first, the very first guy that he chooses, he chooses. It looks like a senator. He's like strong. He's totally like Saul. You mean? 
Saul. No, no, no. When he comes to look at at um, um, at uh, Jacob's sons, Jesse's Jesse's sons. Yes, the first. Oh, yeah, son, the first one. He's like, oh, son. it's obviously this guy. Yeah, because what does he say? Eliab. He, Eliab, and he's like, dude, this guy looks great for sure, yeah. man. But I mean, he describes him as like, wow, we've got a cut jaw. This guy is gonna be a freaking great ruler because he looks like a king. Yep. And then you get to you get to the redhead at the end. That's what ready means. No, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In case you're wondering, are you bro. talking to me or to them? What are you talking to me or to them? I'm talking to you. I know what it means. Oh, that's good. I study I'm, this for a living, dude. I, 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 I'm talking to you and them. Our friend Thomas Smith always says that he probably looked like him. <laughs> so does I think he stole it from Jeff Cavins, who both have red hair and, and red beards and stuff. And so he makes a he has beautiful eyes and a splendid appearance. Yeah, this is where the trick is, though. He looks like a girly man. Well, yeah, I mean, you should be reading through this. And when I said, what's the problem? I mean, the Lord just made it really clear. Don't look at the outward appearance. Look at what's inside. And then the text seems to go out of its way to show, oh, he was he's ruddy and he's handsome. And he's got these beautiful eyes. And it's talking about the outward appearance, right? Yep. Which is problematic, unless you actually are seeing it in what the Hebrew is actually saying. This is where the English translation sort of fails us. And you kind of hit on it. It doesn't talk about how handsome and good looking he is. It's literally the the implication is that his eyes are gentle and his appearance is like very, he he looks kind of feminine is the way the text is actually describing him, which it, it, again, it's just one of those cases where it's not what it sounds like, because if it is what it sounds like, then you should be like, well, God is just totally being hypocritical because he just told you not to do that. And you're doing it, but it, he does look like the last guy that and that's you'd expect. What, that's why, king. that's why I bring up the, the Eliab. Because yeah, because he looked the part. He looked the part, and so they're bringing up image yeah. in contradistinction exactly right. to how Mister Cutjaw, dude. We got Marlboro Man at the first part, and now we and, yes. and and now we've got like curly headed boy, redhead boy, gentle eyes with gentle eyes, and is like thin and slight. I would imagine. Yeah, he's actually described the same way as Leah is. Just remember Leah and Rachel yeah. back in Genesis. He's described the same way as Leah. Dude, Which is rough. Well, Who is very pretty. I wonder if that's where they got Princess Leia. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Come yeah. on. I'm a quintessential nerd. No, that's the, good. I'm it's always really looking good. for connections to pop culture, bro. That's my but, job. But again, I mean, it, again, kind of the Cinderella story. He's like, no, this is the one. And everyone, every, I mean, imagine being the brothers. You're like, wait, him? Seriously? I don't get the same sense we, of like- We didn't the, even invite this brother to the party. because You we, weren't even invited. Because surely it couldn't be you. But the Lord says, no, this is the one. And again, it's just reiterating, no, it's not about the outward appearance. It's actually the last person that you'd expect. But that's precisely the one that God chooses first, which is um, a good lead-in, I think, to the psalm. The Lord Unless is you have something shepherd. to add on that. Well, it's interesting because the Lord chose a shepherd. Exactly right. I mean, like, it's just, it's almost that easy. It's like, you know, like we look and we say, you know, here is the shepherd who's out in the field. And I mean, just for this day, of course, Psalm 23 is 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 like rich. Yes. Because you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And goodness will mercy will pursue me and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord for endless days. I mean, like there's something true. I mean, like I wonder, I mean, like did David write this? This is a Psalm of David. I, I think he probably did. But I keep focusing on, I mean, okay, so two things about that. I, I, the, the shepherd piece is the easy go-to, and it, it's it's so it, I mean that that's so profoundly important. But obviously, he's I'm not. Are you, are you saying I'm taking the easy path? No, out? I'm not. I'm saying I want to. I I'm hung up 
on the there is nothing I shall want part of the response. Because, okay, the Lord is my shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus is called a shepherd. You know, all these things. Like, oh, yeah, totally. But there's nothing I shall want. I'm thinking of that line from two perspectives. From Samuel's perspective and then from David's perspective, presuming that he may have written this. Okay. He, I mean, imagine you're David (laughs) for a second. Okay, I have red hair. I look pretty good. Pretty good. Nice. I like what you did there. I have gentle eyes. Um. He's out in the field. I, I mean, I wonder if David knows what's going on while he's out in the field. If he knows, like, oh, yeah, every one of my brothers is lining up to have the king chosen from them. I wasn't invited to the party. I'm stuck here with the sheep. Cool. That's really nice. You know, thanks for inviting me, everybody. I, I don't know. I mean, do you think he knows that he's been rejected, that he's been forgotten, that he's been left out? And what's that doing? What are his emotions in that? And I, if he does, and we don't know if he knows or not. Well, I mean, I but, know that I know that in town, doesn't Saul invite a bunch of people to come and worship with him that day? Come to so. this thing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Saul. I mean, sorry, sorry, Samuel. Samuel. Well, he invites the, yeah, yeah, he does. Okay. So, so, so maybe. So presumably he knew. Well, maybe, let's say for, for a second that he knew. He knows, that, I mean, I, if that were me, I'd be so hurt. I'd, you know, we've all had the experience where we feel left out of something. Uh, I've not invited you to things before. And Thanks, it hurts man. You. You're the best. But I mean that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Cut the that mu- out. Musical interlude. Yeah, cut, but cut that out. this um, would be really hard. And David's probably thinking, "What about me?" And I'm I'm hearing that second part of the response as the consolation that's given to David. I'm stuck here shepherding the sheep. I'm stuck here in the field. Right. Oh wait, the Lord is the Lord is actually my shepherd. I'm the one who's the shepherd. But right. the Lord is my shepherd, and therefore. I don't need to want anything. I don't need to desire to be there with my brothers. I don't need to be jealous over what's happening. I don't need to feel, where's mine? Where's my portion? Why am I so left out? Mm. There is nothing I shall want because if the Lord really is my shepherd, then he's going to provide it with Mm. a vengeance in this particular case. Yes. You're the king. And then I'm thinking of it from Samuel's point of view, who is like, well, the Lord took me here. The Lord shepherded me to Jesse's house, basically. He was like the little border collie and told me to go here. And now I'm like, what is, where is it? And it was like, it's the simplest answer. I just have only to, oh, there, there he is. I don't have to want, I don't have to be stressed out. The Lord's going to provide. And he provided in this way that was unexpected and kind of shocked everybody. But I love the reaction of Samuel not to be like, wait, what, you? Like that, you know, he doesn't push back. He doesn't fight as you might imagine someone would. He has this profound response to the working and the movement of God. Oh, of course. Of course it's you. Mm. I see it. The mm. Lord has provided. There's nothing I shall want. Mm. I don't know. And I like I like kind of seeing it that way. Yeah. So that's my that's my thought in Psalm twenty three. Which leads us to Ephesians. Yeah. So the the what the the second two readings bring out, and I think what they're putting flesh on is the theological meaning behind the first two readings. The first two readings are, are kind of face value narrative stuff. Right. The second two are what's talking about what's going on kind of at a deeper level, which what's going on at a deeper level is the theme of darkness and light, darkness and light. Samuel, when we meet him here, is actually in a great deal of darkness. I don't know what to do. I anointed the wrong king. He's leading the nation in the wrong direction. What do we go? Where do we do? Is anybody going to save us? What, oh, am I going to ah, do this? Am I going to screw it up again? Am I going to screw it up again? I mean, that is very dark. And then he's found his way down to Jesse's house and the Lord, what? enlightens him. He opens his eyes. His eyes can see. He goes from blindness to sight. That's really essentially what's going on. He goes from blindness to sight and from darkness to light. And what I really like about this reading from Ephesians 
Um, the letter to the Ephesians, I mean, there's so many pieces of context that we could talk about, but the one that I just want to mention, this is the letter, I think, more than any of the other Pauline epistles that's most about the idea of spiritual warfare, partially because the city of Ephesus was like the capital for the occult practices in the ancient world. And what we would call anachronistically like new agey stuff and prayer books and amulets and incantations and all that stuff. They were really into that. And we know that because remember in Acts of the Apostles, they all come out and they burn their incantation books and their spell books and all these stuff. And it was like big business in in Ephesus. And so the business owners, they riot and they kick Paul out and it's this big hubbub. But that's why it's in that city that Paul talks so much about the spiritual warfare. It's not about these people or the Roman Empire or your neighbors. It's about these spiritual realities, which are running rampant in the world of Ephesus and in this church. And so he's saying in this particular way, you guys need to be aware of the darkness that surrounds you and all of the dangers of all these things. This is the book where he talks about our battles, not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities and the powers and the rulers of this present darkness, right? All these, these forces. And it's in the middle of that, that he says to them, Hey, Ephesians, you guys who live in this world, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And I just want to dwell on that for a second because what you expect it to say and what I always expected to say was... You were once in darkness. You were once in darkness. Now you were in the light, but he doesn't say that. He says, no, you were darkness. And now you are light. He goes on later on to say the sins of darkness, the sins of the darkness, which, you know, take your pick of all the terrible things that we fall into as a society or individuals that are just embarrassing and dark, He says, when those are brought into the light, they actually become light. Those things, those, those, those ugly parts of our, our lives and our memories and whatever else, when brought into the light of Christ, they become light. And that's where it's, I mean, that's like such an intense principle. Like, I I feel like I say this a good amount in my life that, um, that the very worst sin that was ever committed deicide the killing of god yeah turns into the greatest grace and expression of life oh that, happy that fault exists. yeah so so it's like yeah. it's 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 right here that we're looking and he's saying if you submit this to the lord mm. then i can transform this into my grace which is so i mean i always had this sort of christian idea of this god who you know we believe in the god that's going to take away all the pain and wipe away all the tears and stuff but it, but that's not i mean and that's true to a degree but he's not just a guy a god that's going to wipe away our tears and make everything better right. he's going to go way beyond that and he's right. going to say no no i'm actually going to take the tears i'm going to take the pain i'm going to take you're the baggage you're going to take the good and you're going to take the bad you're going to take them both and there you have the facts of ephesians <laughs> But he's actually going to take all the baggage and pain and tears and not just wipe them away, but transform them into glory. I mean, this is why, you know, we wear crosses around our necks and hang them from our rearview mirrors. This symbol of death. This torturous device. This torturous device that we don't just forget about and say, well, thank goodness that's over. And just have the, uh, I, I'm always bothered by the, I, I call them the resurrectifix, resurrectifixes. Uh, resurrectifix? Is that what it, I think there actually is. A, res- resifix, uh, some people call <laughs> yeah. it. But it's the, the ones that, that have Jesus, arms outstretched, but he's actually not on a cross. Yeah. It's just the corpus, but it's sort of the, res- and, and I get it, and it's beautiful, and I, I, I'm not, there's nothing bad about them. But it's good to be reminded of the cross because it's not that the cross has now disappeared. The cross has been transformed right. from a symbol of death to a symbol of life. What was darkness is now light to the degree that to any, I guarantee anybody in this society 
unless you're living under a, a, a stinking rock, if you draw a cross for them, they're going to associate it with a particular faith tradition. Absolutely. That's unbelievable. That's like having a guillotine or an electric chair. I mean, I can And having the imagery the totally transformed. Yeah, yeah. Like the yeah, like the guillotine all all of a, all of a sudden as the the um, French Revolution is, right. is all of a sudden now it's this positive beautiful thing on how much we killed. To the degree that we don't even think about the fact that it was a torture device anymore. Right. Our society has actually transformed the way that we view that symbol now. It's like taking the Catherine wheel. <laughs> What does that mean? That was the that was the torture device on uh, which Saint Catherine was martyred on. Take them to the Iron Maiden. Right, just excellent. <laughs> anyway, the good pull. Thanks, man. I thought, I, thought <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate. Oh, that. you deeply. Which then, just to put not to put too fine a point on it, the church just to make sure we catch <laughs> this, puts it in the context of a very long healing story of Jesus of a man who guess what. Move from blindness to, to sight, right? Which is just to, to show, okay. Is that what this gospel is about? Come on, man. <laughs> but just to show, okay, this is what this looks like, right? The healing of this blind man. Um, John I mean, gosh, 9. There's, there's so much to say about John oh, 9. Oh, my goodness. It's 41 verses. What do you. I've split this into uh, one, two, three, four, five, six parts. I've split it into five. <laughs> no, you have not. Oh, you have. Peter, oh, you, Peter Ellis has. Peter Ellis has. It doesn't really matter. I, and basically, you, you, there's the setup, there's the introduction. Hey, there's this guy that was blind. Um, there he, And Jesus shows up. He, uh, he, he makes some mud, rubs it in his eyes, tells him to go wash off in the pool of Siloam. That's the setup. So and then people find Jesus out that gives, he can see. Yeah, Jesus gives sight to the man born blind. Mm-hmm. Then the Pharisees reject the man's testimony. The first interrogation. Yep. And then the Pharisees reject the parents' testimony. Interrogation of the parents. And then the Pharisees again reject the man's testimony. Second interrogation of the man. And then Jesus gives spiritual sight to the man born blind. I just said simply the man believes. But yes. But then there's the application. In verse thirty-nine to forty-five, which involves spittle, which they did actually in the in the beginning of the church sometimes apply spittle to them. Did they really? Yeah, there was some spittle in the in the release. Now, now that I did not know. You know, that's uh, that's my job to tell you about the liturgy. Um, I wanted to point out something. I just want to read what it says in uh, verse thirty-nine. Well, gosh, there's so many things. This is hard to deal with in a relatively short podcast because it's so big. And there's so many things. So what do you do? You You pull out a couple things. Here's the the takeaways, I think. Number one, there's this this rando guy, some guy. Well, look at the beginning part of this, actually. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man. He's in Jerusalem, right? He's there presumably for the Feast of Tabernacles, which was talked about in Chapter 7. So he's in Jerusalem for a feast. Uh, there's this guy blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was his, was it this man, man or, his, or his, parents? his parents? It's setting you up for a particular worldview that the culture has that's not necessarily, not necessarily, it's not true. It's not biblical, but it's this cultural understanding people had. Oh, he's blind. Oh, he's poor. Oh, he's fill in the blank. Sin. What did he do wrong? How did right. he mess up? Or what did his parents do to cause this? This is the whole thing, you know, when we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth in the beginning of Luke's gospel. Oh, they were barren. What did they do? What was their sin? What's wrong with them? And that's where Luke's gospel goes out of the way to point out, low. this is this barren couple that is righteous and holy and good. They've done nothing. This is not, th- this, this physical um, problem is not a result 
of immorality, a result of somebody's sin. But it's setting you up. The story needs to set up that even the apostles don't get this. Even the apostles totally misunderstand the way that sin and grace works in the world. Mm. They, they have no clue. So they're like, whoa, who? And, and just think of for a minute about that line that they say. What a rotten thing to say. Here's a poor man suffering on the side of the road. And you're like wanting to get gossipy. Oh, what did he do? How did he mess up? What did his parents do? You know, I mean, just imagine the snideness in their voice. And I wonder if the human side of Jesus just got ticked. Like, what is wrong with you guys? And so he answers, and you know, it, we have the words, and, but I wonder what his tone sounded like. Neither of them, mm. neither him nor his parents sinned, you jerks. <laughs> he just doesn't say that. But, you know, he can have anger for, anger is not sinful. No. As long as it's properly directed. Neither he nor his parents sinned. It's actually so the work of God, works of God, may be made visible through him. Uh, we have to do the works while the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. There is already this theme. John's gospel already has the theme all over between darkness and light, day and night. And that's big time fleshed down in this story. Darkness and night, day and night. So like, yeah, sorry, yeah. It, it just rhymed or sounded cool. This, by the way, is the sixth um, sign of seven signs that John's gospel is formed around. This cool. is number six. Oh, okay. Number six. Number six. Um, yeah, so we do the works of God while it's day. Night's coming when no one can work. The, the night that is coming, of course, is the crucifixion. Right. He's talking about the passion. Which is the hour as well. Which is also the hour. While I am the world in the world, I am the light of the world. <laughs> I love, while he said this, he spat on the ground. You guys, I am the light of the world. <laughs> it just says while he was, isn't that kind of funny? That if you right. actually read that the it's way that it said. Awesome. While he was saying this profound this profound insight. He hawks a loogie in the mud and he made clay. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. He made clay with the saliva and smeared the clay. This, this poor guy is just sitting there. He's like, oh, what are you doing to me? There's spit and mud and I hear loogies being spat and there's stuff in my eyes now. I, dude, I gotta say, I don't think he did a loogie. Yeah, I know. He, I, It's just for effect. I'm trying I to know. get the people to laugh. <laughs> I'm trying to engage them. Oh my goodness. <laughs> But here's the thing that I like about this guy. He actually models in a lot of ways. He models discipleship. Because whether Jesus hocked a loogie or not, or just put spittle on the ground, regardless, there's a guy who's got spitty mud being rubbed in his eyes. No, I mean, that gets intense. He doesn't appear, but, but, but he seems so docile to this. I mean, if you, if you went down to a homeless guy on Pearl Street or somebody who had one of those signs on the side of the road and just walked up and put a bunch of spit and mud in their eyes, you're probably going to get punched in the face pretty quick, right? Right? Yes. If you did or if yes. I did. I'm yes. just, just put this in context. So you see this docility of this man like, yes, I will allow you for whatever reason to rub this mud in my eyes. And then he tells him, go over to the pool. And he gets up and he does it. He follows. He does exactly what is asked of him. Apparently, you know, from, from the text, no questions asked. Right. And, and then there's something really beautiful about that that just, it's so simple, but to me it's so profound. And it's what kind of makes this guy such a hero of the story. Not just because, oh yeah, he was healed, but the way that in which he responds to God's movements in his life. Mm. Yes, the end result is that he can see. Right. But before he can see, he's already responding to all of God's movements in his life. Mm. Even when they seem strange. He's responsive to them. Mm. That's profound. Yes. And then he can see, and people ask him, they're like, wait, what, what the heck is going on here? And they're like, no, I can't be the same one. And so people are like, how are your eyes opened? 
And I, I, you know, it goes on and we go through the interrogations. Um, well, this is a guy named Jesus. He did these things and he made me go wash. And then they brought uh, him to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are upset. And they're like, well, don't you know who this is? Don't you know it's the Sabbath? And that's kind of the kicker to this story. Well, yeah, that's at the very core. And, and literally it's at the center of the text, too. Mm. That this is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day. I, I, this is such an, I, I know we've said this before on the podcast in different contexts. It's such an insight into the nature of the Pharisees and their own sin. The fact that they don't seem to care less that a man who was blind from birth can all of a sudden see miraculously. And they're just they're really mad about care what time about the it Sabbath. is. Yeah, exactly. It's just, a, it's over the top. It's fascinating. Just on a human level, right. the laws of nature have been suspended. But and they care about what time it is. Exactly. Which is very fascinating. And and again, this is what this is. It's not that there's such strict adherence to the law that make them hypocritical. It's stuff like this that makes them hypocritical. Right. And that they're actually they are shown as the counterposition. Just like there's Eliab who was looked like the right fit, but he was not. And then David who didn't look like the right fit, but was responsive. Here, the blind man, the least in the society, was responsive to the movements of God, despite the oddity of their nature. The Pharisees, who were supposed to be responsive to it and supposed to be the model of it, are unresponsive to the movements of God. And it's, it's actually, if you, if you read on in this, you know, when when they kind of approach this guy, again, I think it's the second round of, of Inquisition. They're like, are you a disciple? <laughs> what does he say? Um, he's like, I already told you this stuff. Like, I already told you, spit in my eyes. I went to the pool and now I can see. And he's, he has this great line. He's like, why do you keep asking me? Do you guys want to be his disciples too? I love that. Are I mean, you... <laughs> they, they, they make sure, actually, for RCA, you read this one every year. Oh, nice. And so, because it really does show this kind of progression of obedience and then evangelism. Like, yeah. there, there's a really beautiful model of Christian conversion found within him. Yes. Do you see what the Pharisees say, though? Because they, it, it's so the juxtaposition I think is striking because the guy is great. What do they answer in response to? Hey, do you want to be his disciple too? Let me get there. <laughs> do you remember? No. They say first of all, no, we're Moses's disciples, and what they keep saying in one form or another is, we know, we see, we get it, we have sight. Again and again. I mean, John is like just, you know. Over the top with it. We know. We see. We understand. And of course, precisely the opposite is true. Exactly. It's the blind man who sees. Exactly. It's the Pharisees who are blind. They are in darkness. They have become darkness. And we know that because of, you know, it's this. Well, no, it's not. Because of Ephesians, yeah. Yeah, they've become darkness. And the blind man has actually become become light. light because now he is a witness. He is himself an icon of what Christ has done. And he actually gives to me the best example of evangelization that there is because it's in that second interrogation when they're like, what, who is he? You know, what do you know about this? Just tell me, you know, tell me what happened. Trying to trap him, trying to trip him up in his words. And he's like, look, all I know is that I used to be blind. I met this guy and now I can see. He gives the personal testimony, which is irrefutable. Right. My experience was this, and that's the best way to evangelize because everybody's got their opinions on the church and Christianity. And, you know, there's so many things that get thrown at us. And, well, yeah. the church is, the church is, Patrick, Pat, you know, misogynistic and it's ancient and it's old and backwards. And, you know, how can you be in a church like that? Blah, blah, blah. And the best evangelization was, you know what? After becoming Catholic or after having lived out my faith, I'm just way happier. Because the world has, what do you respond with? Well, 
No, you don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Like hearing, we had a, a, a debate about um, the church's view of women and the women's place in the church and stuff a few weeks ago. And one of my favorite parts about it was simply our the debater from the Catholic side saying, look, I feel really loved and respected in the church. And how do you respond to that? No, the church is feminist. Well, here's a very powerful vocal woman who works in the church saying, no, I feel pretty respected there. That's my personal opinion. You, you might not, but this is how I feel. And it's irrefutable. What do you do with that? That's why it's the best witness. Because the, the best witness is a human witness. Right. This is who I am. This is where I used to be. This is how I've changed. And, and it ticks the Pharisees off something, something crazy. Yeah, it does. And, and I look, and th- this, is the, this is the wild one. I, I go back to the very beginning of this and the answer of saying, who sinned? And Jesus says, neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. Yeah. That, that so it, that he may become light. Exactly. Like, like so we don't mm. get the sufferings of our lives. Yeah. Even yeah. if they're crippling and, and difficult in, in like the longest capacity. Yes. For 18, 20, 30, 40 years. Yes. Sometimes we don't know why. And that's why we submit everything again to the Lord. Yes. That's, that's actually why, you know, like, why do I suffer like this? There's a difference between accusing the Lord and actually asking him, Lord, why do I suffer why? like this? Yes. And, and, and it's out of that that, that I mean, like, why, why was, I mean, I wonder if, if David felt like he was a little bit alien from the rest of his brothers. I bet he did. I mean, that's why the, the question, did he know that this party was going on and that he just had to care for the sheep and felt a little exiled and didn't understand? Did he choose not to come? Mm. He's like, well, I know that they're all going, but I, I know it's not me. I know surely I'm not the one, Don't so I'm just going to stay here. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I've never thought about that perspective before. I haven't either. Maybe and... he just didn't bother to come because surely God's not going to use me for that. Uh, he that's ca- interesting. He can't turn me into light. Yeah. And uh, you know <laughs> what Jesus says I keep coming back to this. Basically he says those who do not see will come to see. Like the blind will see and the ones who think they see will become more blind. I mean what what he's essentially reiterating is what it says in John's prologue, the light will shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. No. This is that played out essentially, right? Absolutely it is. Why what is the blind Here's the, here's my final question then you can say whatever you like. But this is my last thought. What does the blind man have going for him that the Pharisees do not? Because it's not just the fact that there was a miracle. He says something toward the end that I think is the one thing that he's got that they don't have. And that's such an open-ended question. Because <laughs> it's just this is just what I saw. I don't know. It's only the blind man that admits that he doesn't understand. Oh. Remember when Jesus was like, what, what does he say? Jesus is like, um, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's like, I don't know who he is. Show me who he is and I'll believe in him. Right. I don't understand. I don't know. I don't see. Please show me. Please take me by the hand and take me there because I don't have the ability on my own to see that. His admittance that he cannot see on his own, that he doesn't understand, is what precisely makes him light. The Pharisees, on the other hand, again, keep repeatedly saying, We do see. We do understand. Mm. We do know, which is precisely what shuts them off to Jesus actually showing them the truth. You know, you just gave me an insight into RCIA. Really? And like, you know how like oftentimes we talk about how how 
you know, like converts are like really good Catholics. They tend to be. They tend to be really, you know, like like how like like there is something special about somebody who converts to Catholicism. Yes. And I like I'm 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 I plead with people plead to take seriously the questions that they have about the, their struggles with the Catholic faith. Yeah. I don't get it. Hmm. It's precisely in the moment that you say. I yes. have, I like I struggle. I don't get I it don't why the understand. church why the church teaches this. That's good because that's different than saying I'm mad or I'm I don't know, it can have anger connected to it too though. Yeah, but there's it, something it can, very it can have all of its emotions. God can use the honesty though. Exactly. He can and work with that. Because every time that I've had something <laughs> like that to where I've been going through and I'm like, I don't get this. Yeah. It's those answers that are actually the mm. greatest beacons of light in my own life. Yeah, you're right. Like hmm. a, a, in relationship to my sufferings. Yeah. When I'm like, I don't get this. I don't understand the plan of God. And I am still courageous and willing and ask the question, Lord, what do you want to do with this? With those things that I that that I don't really actually want. I would rather just have them be unjust and um <laughs> and and lick my wounds and yeah. and say like everything sucks. This is so hard. Yeah. Versus saying yeah. like, no, what this is actually part of the plan of God and I'm gonna let you in here. Like those are, those and I get that light. I don't get it, right? And I get that I don't get it. So I'm going to humble myself before you, Lord, mm. and say, I'm going to submit this again to you. Mm. And that's really good. And 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 then I don't know. And maybe it's an intellectual, maybe it's a spiritual, maybe it's a human problem, mm. maybe it's an apostolic one, maybe it's a man woman problem, mm. maybe it's it's one of those things. And dude, so, that's a lot of problems, dude. You there's, just rattled off there. Hey, man, I'm good at problems. <laughs> I'm a priest. Oh, come on now. I mean, I have to listen to problems. Oh, dealing with them. That's better. So so you guys, our encouragement to you is submit these things to the Lord, and the Lord will make you light. Yeah. And he will take the darkest things in your life and actually transform them. And not just wash them away, and not just take them away from you, but actually transform them into light. Gosh, that's so powerful to me. And, And man, but it sure does take a lot of hope and a lot of time. And a lot of saying, I really don't understand how that could possibly be. Absolutely. But okay. But I'm still going to try. Yeah. Or I'm going to let you try. God, not you. (laughs) I mean, I can (laughs) You can try, I guess. (laughs) Hey, keep Uh, it real, y'all. We love you. We will see you next week. I mean, we won't really see you. We will hear you. You'll hear us. You'll hear us. We will speak to you next week. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll continue our one-way conversation. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, No, for all of those people. They're all yelling at us in their car anyway. It's fine. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.